0: You would turn with me in your Bible to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. We are continuing to consider uh, the last words of Jesus on the cross. And as I prepared this message, we see the cross as uh, an event that is. Horrendous! An event that we see uh, a truly innocent man uh, killed on behalf of others, and I'm reminded of uh, uh, the times that I have been able to um, to stand in events, uh, stand in a place where an evil event took place. Uh, maybe, maybe you've had the privilege to travel and go to uh, a site where where uh, a concentration camp was. Uh, maybe you went. Uh, uh, I had the, the opportunity to go to Tiananmen Square in China. Uh, this, this great uh, massacre that took place um, where the Chinese people began to protest against the government and they sent tanks and machine guns in and just wiped them out. And being able to stand in a place like that. I've been able to stand in, in two different locations where two different presidents were shot and killed. And I've been able to, to stand and see a, a large portion of the Berlin Wall And in each of these places, every time that I was there, you had people walking through. And and to me, I felt the overwhelming weight of the tragedy that happened in those places. It was almost like I I had to stop. And and I had to think, what happened here was evil. We live in a a day where uh, the only time that we use the word evil is when something truly heinous happens. Often we, we, we talk about truth being relative and, and uh, how can we really say there is moral uh, evil. Everything is, is ambiguous. Everything is fluid. And yet, we live in a world where evil exists. And so as we think about uh, this evil and the filling of this evil, we come to the cross where the worst thing in the world happened. The precious Son of God was crucified. An innocent man was crucified. The one who, who through all things were created, the one who, uh, who is God above God, was debased and humiliated upon the cross. And We come to this word on the cross, the word of anguish, a difficult word that Jesus breathes on the cross. We see in Matthew 27, verses 46, we see that Matthew uh, describes the way in which Jesus died. At this point in the crucifixion, uh, Jesus had, had born, uh, on. he's been on the cross for a while, and, and it's at this point that we see almost the, the culmination, the height of his, his sufferings here. And in Matthew, we see that Jesus' words of anguish remind believers today of the totality of the atonement. We come to the Christmas time and it's the time that we celebrate the atonement. But what, is, what does that word mean? That's, a, that's an old word. Atonement, it literally means a, a covering. It's, when we talk about the atonement, we're talking about the payment for sin that Jesus made in his life and his death for us, on our behalf, the atonement. Uh, some have said that uh, a good definition of atonement is it's where you and I are brought back at one with God. We are brought together with Him because our sins have been paid for. So what's happening on the cross? What is going on in this situation? Matthew kind of shines light to us today. This word of anguish spoken from Jesus' mouth helps us to understand and comprehend the sacrifice of Jesus in a way that leads us to greater joy and devotion to Him. So we want to look at three truths today when it comes to the atonement. Three truths today when it comes to this last part of Jesus' death. We'll begin reading in verse 45, and we read this. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that the word of God is living and breathing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between soul and spirit of joints and marrow, even dividing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So before we consider this text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would help us to see uh, the depths of, uh, of your sacrifice on our behalf that you would help us to see what Christ has done, these, these truths that you have presented for us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see them, that we would worship and follow you as we ought. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. I love the hymn writer, writer Isaac Watts. Uh, we sing a, a lot of Isaac Watts songs. One of my favorites is the song, At the Cross. I, I love, uh, I, for some reason, we Baptists, uh, I don't know why, but we don't like the third verse in every hymn. I don't know why that is, uh, but the third verse is sometimes the best verse, and I love the third verse. And at the cross, uh, Isaac Watts writes. He says, uh, "Well might the sun and darkness hide to, shed, to hide his glories in, when Christ, the mighty Maker, died for man, the creature's sin." And that's what we see here: that Christ, the mighty Maker, is giving his life up for your sin and for my sin. The first truth that we learn about this event is we find out the price of the atonement. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die in this fashion? Jesus, hanging upon the cross, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice who's crying that out. Nowhere in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, has God ever forsaken his people. God did not forsake Adam and Eve when they sinned against him. God did not forsake David when David sinned against him. God did not forsake Abraham when Abraham sinned against him. When the children of Israel, when they sinned against God and and they were punished for that, God in no way forsook them. Yet here, the mighty maker, Christ most high, upon the cross cries out, My God, my God, why? Why? Have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22. If you look at Psalm 22, the first verse in Psalm 22 is this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the one being forsaken. Jesus is the one who is despised and rejected by men. He is the one, as Isaiah 53 tells us, who, is, who, who, who we esteem him not. Uh, He had nothing, no former majesty that we should come to him. And yet it pleased God to bruise him. It pleased God to crush him for our iniquities. Christ is the one who is rejected here. Nowhere, nowhere in history has Christ ever been rejected by the father. And yet here in verse 45, we see that midday became midnight. In the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Even creation, it seems like, is coming undone. Even creation is, is, is blacking out as not to look at the Son in suffering. Here, Jesus is the price of our atonement. Here, Jesus is the reason, the, 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 the way in which God takes care of our sins. He does it by forsaking Christ, Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ, the one who enjoyed full fellowship with God before the foundation of the world was set. Perfect unity was this triune God. And never before had there ever been even the hint of a split between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But now upon the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus being rejected. Jesus. Did Jesus deserve to be rejected? No. We read in the scriptures that Jesus did all things well from the time that he was born in Bethlehem to the time of his crucifixion. Not one errant, sinful thought came into his mind. Not one wrong deed was done by his hands. His feet never went to a place that was sinful. And yet, and yet Jesus becomes sin for us. This is the way Paul puts it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus was made sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that sin could be condemned in the flesh. Jesus here, the perfect one, he is the price of our atonement. He is the one being rejected by God. The price of our atonement. Not only do we see the price of our atonement, but we see the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is exile, is forsakenness. And here, Jesus, Jesus standing upon the cross, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? We must not be surprised that sin leads to exile. We must not be surprised that sin leads to death all through scripture. At the beginning, God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the garden, surely you will die. Dying, you will die die emphatically you will die you will die and there is no if ands or buts about it and here we see the penalty of sin Paul would come back later in Romans and say that the wages of sin is death and and who has to pay those wages who has to pay up for this sin these sins that that we have committed every one of us has sinned and we see here that Jesus is paying for those sins Jesus had no sins to pay for of his own. And so he takes upon himself my sin and your sin. What is the cost of a sin? What is the cost? Uh, We have seen throughout history, we've seen some mighty sinful events. And we've seen the consequences for those sinful events. We can think about uh, events in history that the world seems to turn upon. Maybe you can think about uh, the, the start of World War I. What was the event that triggered World War I? It was a simple assassination of an archduke. One pull of a trigger, and the world spins into chaos. One sin, and we see the result of that. A war to end all wars. Maybe in our own life, maybe we've we've committed sins. Maybe we've committed one act, and we've been able to see the consequence of that. The man who has an affair, he can see the consequence of that. The one sin that he, he commits and then he sees how he loses his family and maybe he loses other, his reputation. All these things begin to spin out of control and maybe we see that. But for many of us, maybe we don't see the immediate consequences of our sins. Maybe we don't see the immediate consequence of a sinful thought or a sinful action. And the Bible is very clear that there are consequences for every sin. Not one sin will go unpunished. No no sin will be swept under the rug. No, every sin is deserving of death. And not just physical death, but every sin is deserving of eternal death. And here on the cross, we see the penalty for sin. Jesus taking our sin. Jesus upon the cross, this is, this is a, a foreshadowing, this is the reason for Gethsemane. This is the reason why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane cried out, Lord, that if there's any way that you can let this cup depart from me, if there's any way that I don't have to drink this cup, Lord, let it be. But Lord, your will and not mine. What's this cup that Jesus is talking about? Jesus is talking about the, the cup of the wrath of God. The righteous wrath of God for your sins and mine. God is not a, an angry God that, that just flips into emotional anger. No, God is God is a God of righteous indignation, a God of righteous wrath. He is a purely just and holy God, and every sin makes him burn with a wrath that is deserving. And this, this wrath, this wrath for the people of God was bound up on the cross. And Jesus drank every last drop. What do we see in this cross? <clears throat> Jesus is saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Not because of the physical pain. Not because of the, of the, of the pain of, of, of just simply being crucified. No, the, the, the forsakenness of God comes because the wrath of God for sin is poured upon him. It is heaped upon him the sins of of me, the sins of you, the sins of all all those who would place their faith in Jesus is poured upon Jesus, poured upon him to an extent that he drinks every last drop so that you and I would be able to confess our faith in him and stand before God one day as spotless. We can't do that if even one sin is not paid for. And Jesus drinks the drops. Every one. What is the penalty of our sin? The penalty of our sin is hell. The penalty of our sin is is the full wrath of God upon us for eternity. Why is there a hell? There is not a hell because God wants to torture mankind. No, hell was not created for you and me. Hell was created for Satan and his demons, and yet those who refuse to trust in God... Those, until their dying breath, reject the, the grace and the mercy that God extends even today. Those are the ones who must pay for their sins. The, the penalty, the, 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 the thing has been broken and the penalty must be paid. And so it will either be paid by Jesus or it will be paid by us. And those who say to Jesus, I will pay for my sins, they will find themselves in hell for eternity. Indeed, what we see on the cross is that Jesus is tasting hell That Jesus is going through hell, literal hell for us. He is taking the full wrath of God for us. This is the penalty of sin. We see the price of the atonement is a perfect, spotless Savior. We see the price of an atonement is a rending of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We see the penalty of sin is the death of a perfect Savior. But what else do we see? we see a promise from heaven. It seems like the heavens have closed off from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. For three hours, there is total darkness over the land. And here, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no answer from heaven. Elsewhere in Jesus' ministry, there has been an answer from heaven, a verbal answer from heaven. Jesus, at age 30, goes to begin his earthly ministry. Jesus walks along the Jordan and John the Baptist sees him and cries, This is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes to John and says, John, you've got to baptize me. And you remember John's reply. Oh, there's I can't baptize you. I'm not worthy to even tie your your shoelace. Why would I be able to baptize you? John is saying, Jesus, you had no sins to pay for. You have no sins to be forgiven of. There's no reason I should baptize you. And Jesus says, no, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, man must be baptized. So I will be baptized in their stead. I will experience death for them. And what happens when John takes Jesus and pushes him under the water? When he raises up, we see a voice from heaven this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. That's not the last time a voice from heaven spoke. Right before this event coming into Jerusalem, right before the testing, the final testing of the Messiah, Jesus takes John, he takes Peter, and they ascend the mountain. And on this mountain, Jesus, uh, his, his earthly covering is removed and he, he shines forth in this transfiguration And Elijah and Moses are there. And they're conversing. And and Peter, Peter looks around at this and he he says, this, this is, is a taste of heaven. Lord, let us stay here on the mountain in the valley. They want to kill you. But here on the mountain, you are being exalted as you ought to be exalted. Let us build tents and let us stay here. And a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. There was never a time in Jesus' life where He ever spoke to heaven and heaven did not speak back. There was never a time where, where Jesus prayed to heaven and heaven did not pray back until this faithful evening on the cross. And there is no verbal question, no verbal answer from heaven. But there is an answer. There is an answer. In verse 51 we read this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. What is the answer from heaven? Jesus asked God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why the wrath of the world upon me and the answer from heaven is a torn veil and a confession from a Gentile? Now, what does that mean? This temple veil uh, is hiding the holy of holies, the very presence of God from the people. They cannot enter it because they are not holy. And what is the answer from heaven? Why must Jesus die? So that we could have access to the holies of holies. We, you and me, unworthy people, unholy people, people who have no right to enter into the holy of holies. Now you and I are brought in by our elder brother, by the perfect Jesus who died in our stead. And we are brought in with his name. So now the author of Hebrews can tell us, let us enter with boldness. Let us enter with boldness, the throne of grace. Where can you go with boldness? Anybody here? i tell you what. If you ever go on a vacation to Washington, D.C., do me a favor. Jump that fence of the White House, see how far you make it. Walk in with boldness. How far are you going to make it? You're not going to make it far, are you? No, none of us can walk into, into the White House, right? It's an earthly building. It holds an earthly president, not the King of Kings, not the Lord of Lords. And you and I can't walk boldly into it. Oh, let's let's take it a little bit further down. Why don't you walk boldly into the Mississippi Capitol building? Why don't you try to walk into the governor's office? How far will you make it? He's just the governor. It's just Mississippi. It's not the world. It's not the cosmos. This isn't the king of kings, the Lord of lords. No. And yet we can't walk boldly in there. And yet because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you and I can walk boldly into the throne room of grace. Grace not the throne room of wrath. No, the wrath was tasted for us so that you and I did not have to taste it. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that there is now no more condemnation on those who have faith in Jesus. Your wrath was taken to the full. Jesus didn't pay 99% and make you pay the one. No, he paid 100% so that you and I can walk into the throne of grace. What is the answer from heaven? The answer from heaven is a torn veil. But not just a torn veil. Not just a torn veil. No, the answer from heaven, the answer from heaven is a centurion, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, someone who is unworthy, someone who is the enemy of the people of God, someone who is actively involved in the crucifixion of the Savior, looking at him and proclaiming, surely this man is the son of God. Surely this man is the son of God. That centurion was the first fruits. That centurion, that confession that that centurion makes is, 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 is the first fruits of my confession. It's the first fruit of your confession. Because you and I, just like the Roman centurion, we are complicit in the crucifixion of our Savior. We are not worthy by birth. We are not worthy by merit. No, we have nothing that could ever allow us to cling to the person of Jesus. And yet, because of his death on the cross, because of his blood shed for us, because of his cleansing power, you and I call out, surely he is the Son of God. Surely he is the Son of God. Not just the Savior for the Jews. No, this is the Roman centurion, the Gentile. And it harkens back to the promise of God from the very beginning, the promise to Abraham that says, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations, not just one, not just a select group. No, the world will be blessed. You and I, the nations, will be brought in. This is the promise of God. There was a group of missionaries uh, right after the Protestant Reformation and uh, they had a saying. When they sent out missionaries, they would bid each other goodbye by saying, May the Lamb of God receive the reward for His suffering. May He receive the reward for His suffering. Why? What was the reward of Jesus for His suffering? His reward for being forsaken on our behalf is the people of the nations. It's you and I people to call his own, his own precious people, the called out ones, the church, any of those who would place their faith in Jesus, they become his inheritance, his possessions. And this is what he bled and died for. He bled and died to create a people washed by his blood, holy, perfect, a people that would live with him for eternity. This is why he died. This is the promise from heaven. So what does this mean for us on Monday? What does this mean for us when we go back to our work tomorrow? Well, we're reminded of a few things. First, as believers, we must, we must think in great detail about the pain and the great lengths that God would go, that your Savior would go to free you from the bonds of sin and death and call you a son. Jesus does not flippantly save. Jesus does not save without cost. No, the cost was his very life. You are precious before him. Oh, there are times that the people of God, they feel forsaken. They cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We feel the depths of anguish that this sin and that the world brings upon us. But you were bought with a price. You are given worth because Jesus shed his blood for you. Believer, when when trials and tribulations come upon us, think about the great links that God would do to save a wretch like me. Think about what Jesus would do to save you. We are reminded not only of the the links that God would do to save us, but we are reminded of the consequence of sin. Do not think light of sin. Do not think light of the sin in your life. Can you see the sin in your life? Many of us would confess that once we are saved, once we are saved, we, we are not sinless. And yet practically we believe that. Practically we believe that everyone else is sinful, but our sins are respectable sins. We don't, we don't, we don't have bad sins. No, we have respectable sins and we, we often can't see the sin in our life. Uh, often the sin in our life, it grows until it's at a point where we cannot control it. So the question for us is, believer, are you identifying your sin and are you killing your sin? We can't treat sins like pets. We can't we can't treat our sin like the stray dog that comes up and we feed it. No, we must put to death sin. We must see that every sin sent our Savior to the cross that every sin deserved death and hell, and Jesus paid it. And so we must hate sin. Hate the sin that, 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 that sent your Savior to the cross. Hate the sin that shed His blood. Hate the sin that, that poured the wrath of God upon Him. Hate it with all of our might and vow to deny it and not allow it to have a foothold in our life. We must hate the sin. As we come to take the Lord's Supper in a minute, we are told not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? It means it doesn't mean not to take it if you're unworthy, because simply every one of us is unworthy to not take the supper in an unworthy manner is to take the supper without thinking of the consequence of your sin, without praising the way that your savior died for you. Thinking of sin as light. No man can think of sin as light and think of his savior as great. And so you and I must see sin for what it is. It is destructive destructive. And every sin will lead to exile if we allow it to flourish. And so we put it to death. And last but not least, for believers, Jesus deserves the reward for his suffering. Jesus bled and died, and he deserves a full reward. What is that reward? It's not only our life consecrated to him. Our life put out for him, everything for him, because he has paid his life for ours. But it's our neighbor's life for him. It's our co-worker's life for him. It's our friend. It's our family's life for him. And so if Jesus bled and died and if his sacrifice is sufficient to save, then we must take him to our neighbor. We must speak of him. We must share with him. We must call them to repentance and faith. Maybe today in this room there are people who have heard about the sacrifice of Jesus time and time again, and yet it is not important enough for you to sacrifice your life for your Savior. Maybe today, maybe today you have heard about the crucifixion, and yet you have not given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've heard about the grace of God, the great lengths that He would go to to save you, and you have not confessed your sin and trusted in Jesus. There is no need that any of us should be forsaken. No need. No need that any human being ever be forsaken by God, but those who would spit upon the grace of God, who would continually deny it, who would stop up their ears and and have unrepentant hard hearts, those who would not uh, forsake their sin and trust in Jesus, those who would not repent of their sins, those will be forsaken by God. And not for a few hours on a cross. No, a timeless (laughs) forsakenness. An eternity in hell there is no need that any man should go there the the fires of hell are worse than we could ever imagine but the glories of heaven are better than we could ever imagine and Jesus offers them to us today will you trust in Jesus is he sufficient to say when he cries my God my God why have you forsaken me can you cry back I will never be forsaken by God because my God forsook his Christ Because Christ died for me. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who now lives through me. Can we say that? This morning, the cross of Christ calls to us. It calls us to repentance. And it calls us to greater joy. This morning, would you trust in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would help us to know your word. Help us, Lord, to see what you have done for us. Help us to love Jesus more. Help us to place our faith in you and to follow you in repentance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 144, let's